I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. In episode 76 of the Food About Town podcast, I took a trip out to South Hill Cider, which is located just south of Ithaca, and we recorded live at the cidery and orchard. So this was, I mean, this was a fantastic time. We got hit by some rain while we were walking around, but we got a nice tour of their orchard. They're just going to start harvesting on it this year. And we got to talk to Steve for a while and grab some samples. It was a fantastic time. We recorded in his wood shop. So it's going to be a little bit little bit different audio quality than you might be used to uh, when I'm recording at the Food About Town studio. But still sounds really good. And we had a really nice conversation about Steve's journey to becoming a cider guy. And uh, it, it was very interesting in how, how he gets his apples. I think that's a fascinating thing. Use a lot of interesting locations for his apples. You'll have to listen to find out. So uh, if you want to check out South Hill Cider here in Rochester, right now their cider is located. You can get it at Joe Bean Coffee and at Muller's, both on University right next to each other. So go to Joe Bean or Muller's and get some South Hill Cider. Otherwise, you can order it on their website, southhillcider.com. So um, thanks to Steve for having us over. And... If you enjoyed this episode, uh, let me know at Stromy on Twitter or Instagram. You can find them South Hill Cider on Instagram as well. And uh, Food About Town on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Sort of live. I mean, you can't listen to this live, but so what? I'm here live, which is all I really care about. Um, we're recording on location at uh, South Hill Cider. South Hill Cidery or South Hill Cider? South Hill Cider. Okay. Well, that's good. And why don't you introduce yourself, sir? I'm Steve Seelan, and I am the uh, owner, cider maker, orchardist, janitor. Anything you need to be. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we're here uh, just south of Ithaca. This is technically, I saw this on the map, South Hill, right? South Hill, yes. You can. We're looking out the window, and there's a big valley in front of us, which is the Cayuga Lake Valley. And if you just head downhill, you end up in downtown Ithaca. Well, it's a much better vista than I have outside of my podcast studio, so this is a beautiful day to be here. We just got hit by a little torrential downpour, and it's a beautiful day out at the, uh, out at the orchard, isn't it? Yeah. It's Hard nice. to beat. Um, so we're actually recording in Steve's uh, woodworking studio, and this is, as I look around a little bit more, this is a stunning little studio you have here. Yeah, I used to work here a bunch. I used to do a lot of work on string instruments, mostly violin family. 
So repairs or making from scratch or everything and everything? Uh, my main gig was repairing violin family instruments. So okay. violins, cellos, basses. And then I did uh, do some making, but that was mostly banjos. Nice. Yeah. A little bit more niche, but kind of a, what, a passion project? Yeah. Yeah. Is banjo, so do you, I'm assuming you play as well. Yep. Yeah, is banjo my, your preferred instrument? Uh, it was my first instrument, but I don't play much anymore. Mostly I play guitar and fiddle. Okay. Do you have a chance that you play with other people or just for fun? And Oh, uh, yeah, I've been playing out re- pretty regularly for the past 15 years. That's awesome. Um, most of the gigs are with Richie Stearns, who is a, a kind of national treasure in the banjo fiddle world. Nice. And, um, yeah, Rosie Newton, him and Rosie have a duo. They, they play a lot. And then I have other friends that we play together a lot for fun, and it's gotten to the point where now we book gigs because it forces us to actually... <laughs> Pull through and get together and play. So. Right, because otherwise it's hard to actually go when you're busy. I mean, I find the same thing with my hobbies at the same time is you just don't find time to go be with the people you want to be with, do some of the fun things you love to do. Not that this day-to-day stuff is bad. Right. But it's still day-to-day. Even your passion projects that become day-to-day become it's day-to-day work. Yeah. It's pruning. It's moving, moving your branches around. Yeah, because we just took a we took a little walking tour of your orchards here, and you're getting ready to use your orchards for the first time, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. We started planting trees in 2014. Most of them went in in 15, so this is their third third <clears throat> year. It's called their third leaf in in the orchard in place, and so this will be my first year to make an orchard uh, estate grown cider from this orchard. So cool. I mean, let, let's talk. Let's take a step back and talk about how you got started in this whole cider thing, because you've been making it. I'm going to say before it got cool here in upstate New York to be making cider. Um, it's weird in the last what two years, cider interest in upstate New York, especially in the Rochester area, has just exploded. I mean, we had uh, places like Joe Bean Coffee pushing cider about two to three years ago, and now we have a dedicated cider house that opened up in Rochester. So, what brought you to cider? How do you get interested in it? Um, it's the cider making kind of came at me um, subconsciously <clears throat> in a way. I was I was aware that cider making was uh, a common what I thought was a common occurrence because when I grew up, my dad would go every Tuesday to a place called the cider cellar, where there would be a group of people, dozens of mostly guys, hanging out in a barn cellar. Where cider was being made, they made some wine. It was a, originally a cheese cave in the 1800s in Bennington, New York, western New York. I know Bennington, surprisingly, my grandfather lives in Bennington. Huh. Well, just, I mean, technically Attica, but right around well, Bennington. I would love to track this barn down because I've never actually been there, so really? maybe you can help me track it down. Oh, that'd be awesome. The family, their, their name was Fuff. Barney and Bill were two brothers. Okay. Barney and Bill Fuff. That's they a great were farmers, name, and they had a barn that had a cellar. Which, before they had it, it was a cheese cave for Hasselbeck Cheese Company. Okay. Which was some cheese company that contracted, I think mostly German immigrants is what I heard, to, to make cheese in cellars. This, is, was, this was before refrigeration. Right. And so they needed to have these barns <clears throat> outside of Buffalo with cellars where they would make the cheese. Then they would transport the cheese into the city and sell it in the city. So It's amazing we had those kind of things built. And they completely got lost and destroyed. And now, in a lot of ways, we're working to recreate 
that movement now mm-hmm. when you had that existing. And I'm sure those were exquisite, exquisite cheese aging caves. Right. And now yeah. now we have to do it with more regulations and everything else. But I guarantee that that was a great cheese aging cave underneath a barn. Right. Yeah, that's what it was made for. <clears throat> and so, but then these brothers purchased it after, once refrigeration came about, they didn't need these cheese caves. They would just make the cheese in the city in refrigerators. Right. And so, so they had the cellar and they had barrels in it where they were making mostly cider and then some wine. And so every week my father would be going to what I knew of as the cider cellar. I never really thought of it much until decades afterwards when I started making cider. And then, um, so yeah, I never tasted that cider, never went, never went there. But it was always in my consciousness that that's something that adults do. Right. And so then once I was living in Ithaca, there were people making decent cider around here. Uh, Peter Hoover is one of them. He, he... I don't know how he was introduced to it, but now he's in his 70s. And so 20 years ago, he actually planted a cider orchard. He planted varieties that were from England and France that are cultivated for making Which cider. Which we'll, we'll definitely be talking about a bit more because that's a fascinating part about the whole process. But right. anyways. So, so he was making cider back then. And there's also there's a lot of wineries around here. And as a musician, I was playing in wineries at least a day a week for a few years. So I was tasting all the wine that was presented to me around the wineries, and that's that's what really started kindling my interest in in alcoholic beverages more than just you know making carboys of beer when I was a teenager. Yeah, I mean that's I think it's a lot of people's first step into this, isn't it? Yeah, you're making whatever generic um, generic grog you can make from the local store, mm-hmm. and that's about it. Yeah, so so being in wineries. For years, I just started tasting more and more wines and started realizing that the cider I was making was not that dissimilar in quality to some of the wines. In fact, I think it was actually better than a lot of the wines I was drinking. And my friends were winemakers and also cider makers. And so there was just a lot of sharing of, of information, a lot of tasting together. Tasting with winemakers was, was a big part of my um, unanticipated education. You know, I wasn't planning on that yeah. happening. Well, be, I bet it. I bet be also because it was, it wasn't. You weren't as serious about it, but you were really enjoying it, enjoying the process. Mm-hmm. It had to be a big part of that. As soon as you formalize and you say, "Hey, I'm educating for this," you can still take it. You can still make a lot of progress. But when you're doing it on your own because you really love it and you're just hanging out and having a good time, I'm sure, it kind of hits you a different way. It does. Yeah, I never really thought about it, but I think it probably also affects the character of the product in the end, too. Yeah. That if you have a goal that I'm going to do this and not not have experience with the product ahead of time, what you'll make is what people teach you to make. Mm. Where when you're experiencing something and, and cultivating something that you find interesting and you're doing with other people, it might grow into something different. Yeah, completely, completely whatever you think it should be, right. which is kind of cool. Um, so you're making it on your own, and obviously you're doing that for a while. Um, how did that transition into running a business out of the whole thing? Yeah, so I was making barrels of it in my cellar for years. I was making the maximum legal amount. You know, I wasn't making any more. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, I was I was making enough cider and, and had honed it to the point where it was better than almost any commercial cider you could find on the shelf. Right. And 
there's a lot of small wineries around here and people making wine commercially on a pretty small scale, you know, a few thousand gallons a year. And so that seemed like something that I could pull off with the cider because it was high quality and I knew that we have we can grow great quality fruit around here and having the resources of other winemakers to, to collaborate with and learn from would be helpful and beneficial. And I saw also there's other cider makers around here that were all, you know, growing at the same time and doing similar work and being part of a collaborative environment was also very attractive. Yeah. So when, when, when was that when you started transitioning over? Uh, the transition was sometime around 2012, 13 is when I okay. started thinking, wow, maybe I could actually, maybe I should make, try and make a business out of this. And that, again, I mean, so people reference, I mean, 2012, 2013 is before is really on people's radars here locally. Um, other than obviously people who it was around them and you, you made that, made it your hobby. But it was uh, sort of outside the radar, so it's that's cool. And it sounds like Ithaca is kind of a hotbed for it in a lot of ways. It is, yeah. Around that time, there was um, a couple commercial cideries around here. I mean, Bellwether had been there for 10 or 15 years prior. Eves was then not long after that. Yeah. And so they were already doing cider commercially. And there were several other cider makers who were just starting to get commercial. Redbird, I think, was the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Maybe two or three others came online around the same time as me, around 2013, 14. I got my license in 13. Uh, and so we were all sharing a lot of information about varieties and fermentation techniques. And- well, it has to be nice. Yeah, you're right, that collaborative environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when you're all really, it's the, the classic adage, you know, the rising tide. You know, it's making all of you better all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Finger Lakes is definitely gaining a reputation for high quality, a high, a high quality region for cider making. Because yeah. cider making is taking off all over the country, and nobody really knows how regional character is going to present itself. Yeah, it's and, an interesting question because you know people talk about terroir when it comes to wine as a very specific thing, and. I mean, New York State's been an agricultural hub for, you know, forever. I mean, we're an amazing apple-growing region. We're an amazing agricultural region in general. And to see what, you know, maybe in a few years people know what New York State cider tastes like versus, you know, uh, Oregon cider mm-hmm. or Washington State cider. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of an exciting idea. It's really exciting. And a lot of it right now, there's so many different ways that people make cider. So, so your techniques have a lot to do with what you're producing. But when you get to the you know, more fine quality, we don't even know what word defines the ciders that are made like fine wine. Mm. It's hard to differentiate that in the market. Um, you know, because some, <clears throat> ciders, some cideries, they import apples from other states. They use concentrate and they make ciders that are more akin to uh, wine coolers. Or alcohol pops. pops. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so they still, people call that cider. So it's hard. We don't know exactly the terminology to use to differentiate what we're doing yeah. from that. Well, it's hard to do with wine, too. I mean, that's still prevalent. I mean, we're still, the Finger Lake still does produce sweet, candy-like, regular, you know, I don't, regular is probably the wrong term, but these sweet, candy-like, high residual sweetness wines that a lot of people want. At the same time... When, when people become more serious about it, when 
uh, your wine professionals become interested in the area. Um, we actually, you know, we came here from uh, Elements Winery. We drove here from Elements Winery and over in Artport. And it's people taking wine seriously that are transforming this area and turning it into, um, turning it into a destination for craft beverages, cider, wine. And I think that's the, that's the, again, the fascinating possibilities we have right now. Right. And so, yeah, to bring it back to terroir, yeah, please. It's, it's those ciders that are made like wine, where <laughs> we are just taking fresh fruit and harvesting very specific varieties that are grown in specific ways, just at the right time, perfect ripeness, pressing that and fermenting that into whether it's bone dry or off dry, you know, more dry ciders. Those are going to be the ciders where you can really show the fruit. And I think that's where New York cider will be noticeable because our fruit that we grow here, especially in the Finger Lakes, where the falls are probably a little cooler and the soils are very mineral rich because of the glacial deposits uh, and the shell, the shell bed, bedrock, our bedrock is only about four feet down below the orchard. So really? as long as the orchard survives, it should yeah. get plenty of uh, mineral from that um i say survives just because i was stressed out last year it was a drought and we had oh no during the middle of the last summer was brutal. yeah and so it really dry because our soil is only four or five feet deep and we don't have irrigation right so it's, it's looking okay but it was yeah i mean stressful. this year's been a ton of rainfall although it's all been concentrated all in the beginning of the season it will be interesting right. to see how yeah. the summer months go go down this year. Yeah, compared to last year, this year is beautiful. I mean, <laughs> too much rain could cause other problems. Absolutely. Um, but so far, it's been a really good growing season for the apples. Nice. Well, it's uh, great to hear because I know some of the some of the farmers I've talked to this year uh, lost a fair bit of their fruit on some of their some of their trees, not necessarily apples, but other crops. And we had a thaw in the middle of the winter this year where things ended up flowering and then we had a freeze. And apparently that was really bad for a lot of fruit trees. I didn't know how if that affected you guys. Yeah, no, here it was okay. In fact, peaches is um, one of the barometers. Yeah. Because peaches, maybe one out of two or one out of three years, if you have peach trees, you can expect them to crop. This year is looking like a really good peach year here. Okay. Because mainly because of the mild winter. But also things didn't flower too early. Our apples were pretty unaffected by that warm winter, which we are really fortunate. We got a couple inches of snow at least in early March, which was after a real warm spell. Right. And if that didn't happen, I think we would have been screwed. Mm. But fortunately, March, there was a lot of snow cover on the ground, which kept the trees dormant for a while. So so we didn't have any problems with spring frost. or. or That's anything. great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're, you're starting growing at a very interesting time in, in our region. We don't know what to expect coming up soon. Um, seems like we're getting, yeah. obviously, more extreme. We're not, not a political podcast, but even, even so, uh, when I talk to farmers and I talk to people who, I mean, you're, you're a natural um, organic. I don't know if you're certified organic. but I'm not certified organic. Everything I've... I'm doing is certifiable, except that I, I painted my trunks with latex paint mm-hmm. down, you know, about a foot to a foot and a half off the ground yeah. to discourage some borers. And if you have latex paint on your trunks, these days you cannot be certified organic. But in a couple of years, I could certify it and it's no problem. Sure. But yeah. So, if you wanted to. But yeah. even so, then you're just paying to put a label on your bottle 
which is nice. But I mean, also, it depends I think on the, the market you're in whether yeah. it even matters or not. I think the general practice is worthwhile, regardless. Oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's not right. I'm not. I'm not being organic here for the consumer. I mean, it, it's. I'll. I'll really appreciate it if they appreciate that it's organic. But the reason I'm doing it organic is just for my soul and my family. I mean, my kids are running around, rolling around on the ground, and we're we love being out there. And if I was spraying chemicals that I was concerned about how toxic they were to the environment, not only would I not feel good about what I'm doing there, but then I wouldn't be able to just let my kids just roll around with the trees. So Right. Um, and you wouldn't feel good about your four little cute pigs sitting in a pen right near the orchard. Right. Right. Those are cute little buggers. Uh, what, what are those again? They're American guinea hogs. Okay. And so they're a slow-growing breed. They're not... Uh, uh, people have tried them out as a commercial meat pig mm-hmm. but i think the consensus among those people is that they're not a viable commercial meat breed because they okay. don't grow fast enough well yeah everything has to be fast nowadays right. we don't want to grow for flavor we want to grow for speed right but these guys i got because they actually have a job they're <clears throat> they they don't root too deep and they like perennial weeds like dandelions and dock and those are some of the weeds that come into young plantings okay and apple trees and controlling the weeds is one of the most difficult challenges with organic management. So the pigs hopefully will be able to focus energy on controlling some of the perennial weeds in the orchard. Sheep are, are a traditional orchard animal in a lot of European orchards, but those are more established orchards where they already have a cover of grass because sheep are very picky. They don't like to eat weeds. They mm-hmm. prefer to eat the, the grasses. Of course they do. Although I think if the pigs are eating the dandelion greens, that's pretty awesome because I love dandelion greens too. Mm-hmm. Hard to beat as a green, really. Yeah. Have you ever blanched them under a under a pot? No. Oh God, do it. So just go find some dandelions that are growing. Okay. And throw um throw a bowl, okay. big heavy bowl, like a mixing bowl, yeah. on top of them for a couple days, and they start to get a little more pale and really juicy because right. you know, they're they're getting shaded. Right. And so, uh, yeah, they get really tender. Oh, it's interesting. Really, uh, yeah, check it out. That's an interesting idea. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked a little bit about your orchard, but obviously, this since this is your first, uh, the first year you're going to harvest out of your own orchard, you've been making cider for you know three years commercially and years before that. Where do your grape grapes? Wow, thinking winery still. Where do your apples come from? Yeah, they come from all over the region, and I started out using a lot of wild apple trees, and it was because that's what I was surrounded by, and was making really good cider. And then in 2012, we had a winter that was even way warmer than this past winter was. Mm. It was 80 degrees for almost a week in March. I mean, some trees were flowering around St. Patrick's Day. It was frightening. Absolutely. So there were almost no wild apples anywhere around here. And I still wanted to make cider. And so I figured I would buy some apples and make cider. And so at that point, I bought some apples from uh, some commercial orchards, including Cornell Orchards. Oh, interesting. Cornell Orchards, they have some blocks that actually had cider varieties in them. And so I made some cider from the Cornell apples, some bittersweet apples blended with other, other more acidic varieties. And I also bought some cider from from a, a farm up near Lake Ontario that had apples that year. And it was an incredibly stark difference 
between the cider that was made from the conventional eating apples versus the cider variety apples that I had from Cornell. Of course. And that was the like huge revelation to me in terms of variety having such a huge impact on the product. Because before that, I just accidentally was using grapefruit because the wild apple trees that I was using to make cider from have incredible flavor. It's got a lot more tannins and acids than typical grocery store varieties. Because the apples we eat, I mean, we let's talk about that for a second. We'll go back. The apples we eat every day, I mean, some are stored, obviously, but even when it's the, the heart of the season, are high sugar, grown for crispness, and then acidities, depending on the variety, sort of an afterthought. But that's it. We get sugar, acid, and crisp, and that's it. Right. Yeah, you're talking about eating apples like yeah. that. You could buy it at Wegmans. Absolutely. And so, yeah, those are interesting because they might taste sweet, but actually those apples are generally fairly low in sugar, fairly low in acid, and crispy. And yeah. that's the way those apples are bred. Like people want, people want eating apples to be real crispy and mildly sweet, mildly sour. Whereas cider apples will be, you know, if you're talking about bricks, I would say an average grocery store apple might be 11 bricks. Okay. You know, 11 and a half, 12, if you're like really lucky, mm-hmm. um, depending on how you like your apples. Where cider apples, you want them to be, you know, at least I want them to be more 14, 15, 16 bricks. Oh, wow. Some varieties even higher. Golden russets are often 18, 19 bricks. Wow. And so... So you want cider apples to have higher sugars, higher acids, and probably higher tannins than those. When people are breeding fruit for eating, they're breeding the characteristics that we want in the fruit. They're breeding that out of the fruit. They're breeding tannins out, you know, incredibly high acids they wouldn't want because they'd be too tart. Right. Really high sugars. I don't even know if they could achieve them with their management techniques, but uh, yeah, they want stuff very moderately sweet, sour, really crispy. Sort of baseline. Right. Where wild apples, if you look at wild apples, the average wild apple out there is going to have off the charts acidity or tannins and probably have a lot of sugar too because they are very small apples and so the flavors get really condensed. It's very similar with grape growing. Yeah. That you don't want things overcropped and blown up with irrigation and fertilizers. and um, Yeah, when there's a wild apple tree that's just untouched out there, it has small fruit on it it's usually very densely flavored so when i started out i was using that fruit exclusively and then started buying fruit in 2012 realizing the huge impact that the fruit has on the cider so from there i've gone through a progression where now i do some some ciders are entirely from wild fruit some are a blend of wild fruit with cultivated fruit like bittersweets and um and then i've found some orchards that are semi-abandoned. I mean, some are some are totally abandoned for decades. There's an orchard about five miles south of here that has uh, over half a dozen 30-foot-tall King and Baldwin trees, which are just great. It was planted on a 24-tree grid 100 years ago, so I don't know what they were doing with that much fruit back then, but right. so that was abandoned. And then there's other orchards that were commercial orchards, say, 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, and now those varieties are totally out of fashion. Nobody really wants them, and but the orchards are still there. And so some of those varieties are 
Rhode Island Greening and Northern Spy. So I've been able to work with some of those orchards to manage the fruit more for hard cider where they're not putting in a lot of nutrient inputs and, and I'm able to purchase that fruit. And feel comfortable with the way it's grown as well. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's making better fruit. Like those spies I got from there last year pressed out, they pressed out at 16 and a half bricks, which if you buy Northern Spies, which I tried two years ago, from a conventional orchard, they'll be maybe 12 bricks. Wow. Maybe, probably not 13, <laughs> you know, even on a good year. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, I, I really appreciate that effort that you took to find, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you found resources that were being underused or not used at all. And, I mean, these things are producing fruit, regardless of what we do a lot of the time. Uh, so that's, that's a, it's a great use of our resources we have in our area as well. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, it was a nice kind of almost happy accident that some of these orchards were already being managed with a much more hands-off approach. And it was for economic reasons. It wasn't even right. because I was going to come along and <laughs> want that fruit. Um, but yeah, it works out great. And I'm able to pay them a lot more money for their fruit than it would go if they were to sell it just on the generic, um, I don't know if it's called commodity market. but. Right. But that, that's a great result as well. I mean, you're you're building you're building a community around around your passion of cider, and you're benefiting more than I mean, you're obviously benefiting the end consumer because they get to taste a delicious product, which I think we'll be tasting in a little bit. Um, but you're benefiting everybody in the process, which is kind of nice. Benefiting the land at the same time, which I mean, sounds like a win-win-win to me. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's great when things work out that way. Yeah. So when you're talking about these traditional cider varieties, um, obviously there's a much there's a rich history of cider growth. I mean, here in America, and then obviously Europe has been the cider trend never really died in Europe. It's been consistent uh, in countries like Spain and England very consistently uh, for hundreds of years. Um, do we use the same apples? Do we use similar apples? Um, techniques. Uh, what what differs from what you do, from what you'll see in more some of the more traditional, uh, more established orchards? Are you talking the established European orchards? Yeah, we're even or... here. It doesn't really matter, I guess. Yeah, um, I'd say it's 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 probably fairly in line with smaller cider orchards in Europe, where a lot of the varieties grown are grown for their tannins and. Uh, high bricks and, and nice tannins, but then also some varieties will provide more uh, acid and aroma. And so you grow apples that have those characteristics and blend them. So most most cider, most European ciders are blends of, of apples. You can classify them in different ways. You hear terms like bitter sharp, bitter sweet, terms like that. It's so you can like classify them by their chemistry, which allows you to guess at what, what you want in your blends. Um, and so, yeah, the cider is, is a balance of bittersweets, bitter sharps, and sharps. And that's, that's pretty in line with most European cider orchards. You have a lot of orchards in the United States. In fact, I would say probably 95 or more percent of ciders produced in the United States are using apples that were planted and grown for the eating market. And so that's where the difference comes in is that this orchard is very different than if you might call them average orchard in the United States, 
because there are hundreds, if not thousands of, of orchards, even on a scale of probably 50 acres, 100 acres, that were growing eating fruit, which now the market is going so much more towards these uh, very branded apple varieties. Yeah. That like uh, Snapdragon and 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 Honeycrisp was a great example. Well, Honeycrisp, yeah, everybody would be familiar with that one. So, so much of the market is going that way that you've got these orchards that have hundreds of of acres of older varieties that are established. That a lot of those orchards are starting to make cider out of those, and you can make some good sparkling ciders, and especially if they're sweeter, out of those. But those or those varieties will never produce a really complex dry cider. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the the watershed that defines orchards like this compared to the average orchard. Gotcha. Um, I guess before we take a quick break, uh, you mentioned working with Cornell and using some of their uh, cider apples. Uh, have you a chance to work with them as you're developing your own orchard um, in techniques and anything like that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean. But it was primarily through my relationship with the orchard manager. I, I okay. knew his name's Eric Schatt, and he makes Redbird Cider, which is phenomenal. And okay. you should check it out. Absolutely. But um, so I knew Eric uh, in the early 2000s, you know, when I was just making cider as a hobby. And, um, and he was also. And, but he's the orchard manager at Cornell. And so he, has, he had a lot of experience with different management techniques. And I consulted him. Uh, pretty much nonstop while I was designing my orchard. And so the, the, the orchard design of using semi-dwarf trees on very close spacings um, because there's going to be weed competition and not much fertilizer going into it, that design was was pretty much taken directly from Eric's recommendations. He was working at Cornell, so I was getting help from Cornell <laughs> that way, but... I didn't, not that I approached Cornell for the help. Yeah. It just kind of happened that way. That's awesome. And then, but also the varieties. Absolutely. I was working with the varieties they have in their hard cider blocks. So I knew which ones I liked and I knew how to work with them already. So when I planted my orchard, I went that route and I actually harvested a bunch of budwood, cut, cut budwood from their orchard and had a bunch of trees propagated from that orchard for, for my use. And so I already, I know how to work with those varieties from buying buying their fruit kind of a great resource in our region amazing totally um amazing. and i think we get spoiled and forget how amazing a resource it is and how much they've done for um the small growers not just the big growers but the small growers as well yeah no doubt yeah i i don't know if this cider um uh, cider scene or whatever you call it around here in the finger lakes uh would it would not be the same if it had not been from the influence of Cornell. And also, I mean, Ian Merwin, who is the cider maker and owner at Black Diamond Orchard, he used to be the pomologist at Cornell, and he is single-handedly responsible for those hard cider varieties being planted at Cornell. And uh, he's okay. a cider maker. He's been making cider for decades. So even without the influence of one person like that, this whole scene would be very different. That's really interesting. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. And we're back with some tastings, and we'll finish up with uh, finish up with South Hill cider. Hey everyone, I want to take a second to talk about a new project I'm part of that I'm really excited about, called Frankly. Frankly is trying to bring transparency to food sourcing 
for restaurateurs, farms, and people that produce specialty goods. We want to make it easy to know that people are doing things the right way and to make it easy for people to find the places that are doing things the right way so you can grow your business because you care about what you're doing. If you have any interest in this product or just want to know more about it, you can email me, stromie at p-h-r-a-n-k dot l-y or check out the website, frankly, p-h-r-a-n-k dot l-y. And as the gurgling of the air conditioner winds down, we're back. And um, Steve's brought in some brought in some ciders. He got some chilling. Yeah, just put them in the cooler. So he's uh, got a few different varieties we're going to try. And talk a little about where they come from and what made these interesting to you at the time. Assuming the corks want to come out. <laughs> oh, there it goes. Very nice. All right, so these first two are uh, dry ciders. The first one is is sparkling, and it's called Pack Basket. Okay. It's called Pack Basket because it's all made from wild apples, and the first year that I labeled it, the it was a really light crop of wild trees, and so there was only one small valley that was really high up that had fruit on it, and it was so far from the road I had to haul it all out on my back. We have these baskets that go on your back called pack baskets. Oh, uh, that's how it got that name. So yeah, all of the apples in this are wild seedling apples, which means that each of the apples grew from a seed. And so because of that, every one of those apples is a different, unique variety. Interesting. The only way to propagate trees true to variety is to graft and take a cutting from one tree and graft it onto another tree or rootstock. And if you propagate them by seed, every seed's going to be a new variety. That's how a lot of breeding happens. You take two trees and pollinate one with the other, and then the seeds will be half genetics from one parent, half from the other. Interesting. I'm not familiar with that, that the seed doesn't just reproduce what it was. Exactly. That's the same with grapes. So in huh. order to propagate a certain grape variety, you have to take a cutting and put that cutting onto another rootstock, which will grow into the same variety. If you were to take grape seeds and plant those... Every variety, every plant would be a new variety. Interesting. I, I mean, I, I knew grafting was a big part of wine and apples, but for whatever reason, I didn't know that, that the, the, the seeds don't pre- just reproduce the same thing. That's really interesting. Huh. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose that would be the rootstock thing. One of my friends at Apple Country Distilling, their cider is called rootstock. Which oh, right. Makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is fermented in the bottle, bone dry. About eight point three percent. Yeah, color's nice and rich. I mean, that's yeah. The color is these have great color, and it's uh, largely because there's there's tannins in the wild apples. Oh. So what about this stands out to you as a very specific? I mean, you're bringing this from a specific area. What about this grabs you? I mean, obviously, it's you know the. Uh, sparkles nice and light. It's not it's not aggressive by any means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Krebs me is just just got a really nice rich aroma. Like it, it's very uh, earthy, but not it's not not funky. It's uh, no, it's earthy. It's not, yeah, because that's uh, one thing about fruity. one thing about uh, ciders. You can really get towards the funky barnyardy 
really aggressively interesting. I find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. Some people find it off-putting. I find it awesome. Uh, but you can get some really intense flavors in ciders sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the barnyardy aromas are coming from fermentate bacterial fermentations, probably yeah. for the most part. Mm-hmm. And some ciders are very uh, low in acid. Right. So they can have fairly high pHs, which I think allows for that to happen pretty easily. Yeah. These apples, um, being wild apples, they're very, very high in acid. Yes, nice medi- medium to high acid. I mean, right. really clean, really clean tasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was from 2015, so it's been in the bottle now for, I think, probably probably mm. close to a year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah. I yeah, do love, I love that acid. I'm kind of an acid, I'm an acid fan when it comes to to beverages and this super refreshing imagine this on a you know beautiful sunny day you know nice and crisp out of a uh, nice and chilled on a hot day this would be hard to be mm-hmm. mm. yeah yeah i love it and it's it's better now every time i open one of these bottles is better than last time they they really need time in the bottle to yeah. come together i mean i, I was loving it Six months after it was bottled. Yeah. But now there's no comparison. It's just, it's so much more relaxed and open. Um, yeah. So, I mean, before we move on to anything else, um, where, where can people get uh, South Hill Cider, generally speaking? Well, if you're online listening to the podcast, I would say go to my website and order at mail order directly from me, southhillcider.com. I have a link where you can buy a cider. I can ship it. There's like 40 states I can ship to. Nice. And I ship it direct, pack up the boxes and send them. But there's a lot of wine shops around. Most of them are here in Tompkins County, right around Ithaca. Okay. The Cellar Door, Red Feet, Northside, uh, Finger Lakes Beverage Center. I mean, there I could rattle off more. But if you're listening to this and you don't live in Ithaca, chances are just order it online and I'll send you yeah. whatever you want. In Rochester, yeah. do you have uh, any stores... Rochester, I don't. In okay. fact, if you have any wine shops that you think are, would be interested, let me know because I would love to. Um, I just, I I'm kind of a one one person operation with one part time employee. My brother lives in Buffalo, so he's got a couple accounts in Buffalo. I love Buffalo. Buffalo's but, a great place. Yeah, me too. Um, but yeah, other than that, Rochester Mullers has it. Yep. That they sell, but mostly. Um, I don't know if they sell. I guess they would sell bottles to go. Yeah, but it's, so not, Mueller's it's not a wine shop. Mueller's, yeah, Mueller's and Joe Bean it. sometimes. I yeah, mean, Joe Bean has it sometimes. That's where I got introduced to you guys. Was at an event you had at uh, Joe Bean cool. Coffee over on University. But you can go to Mueller's. They have at least three or four of our bottles there. Awesome. Some sometimes they have stuff on tap. Nice. Yeah, but other than that, not much in Rochester. Okay. Yeah. Mostly, well, maybe, maybe we'll work on that a little bit. Yeah, that'd, that'd be, be great. great. Yeah, I would love to see this around more. Cool. Thanks. Uh, this next one is is still, and this one comes from Peter Hoover's orchard. Peter's the guy I was telling you about that planted an orchard, a cider orchard, 20 years ago, and he planted the orchard to be a good orchard blend. And yeah. So I was able to go in and harvest each variety when it was perfectly ripe, and blend them all together, ferment them together, and just present it as a still cider. And you're you're also saying, I mean, when you're when you're talking about picking each fruit when it's right, means you don't just go out once. 
you're going out multiple times to pick oh, at yeah. the optimal time. Right. Yeah, we probably took at least 10 or 12 at least passes through the orchard to harvest. And it's not a huge orchard. It's only 50 trees. It's mm. a quarter of an acre. We got, um, let's see here, 88 cases were produced from it. The whole orchard produced 88 cases. Mm. And it's totally biennial. So last year there was no fruit. This is all from 2015. And this year there's another good crop. So all things go well. We'll make another stone fence farm cider this year and be able to do some vertical tastings from it. Well, that would be awesome. And um, yeah, it's great that you still have some available and that you're starting to store it a little bit too. Because I wonder about age ciders as well. You know, trying to age longer times. Yeah, ageability is a <clears throat> uncharted waters. I do have a, a still cider that I made specifically with aging in mind, yeah. and it's totally, totally working. It's it's great. It's so much better. In fact, that one's even better if you open it and let it breathe, or if you even pour some glasses out and let it sit for a few days. It's better after three or four days than it is when you first open it. That's exciting. Uh, yeah, and that, but that one was, it was made with that in mind, so that it had really intense acids and tannins to begin with, and then it was aged in barrel on the lees for long enough that it went through ML and became very stable because of that. What is that process called? Is it ML? I'm not familiar. Oh, malactic fermentation. Okay. Mellow. Yeah. Gotcha. So with, with wine, only a small proportion of the acidity is from malic acid a lot of the acidity in wine is tartaric acid okay but in apples almost all of the acid is from malic acid mm. so the influence that malactic fermentation has on ciders is huge even bigger much bigger than it, the effect it has on grapes yeah mm. again another one with very pleasant acid a little more subtle than the last one but another big aroma off the big aroma in the nose yeah right from the start this one had phenomenal aromas mm. and that's it's just all fruit the, the aromas in here is it's from the fruit the, the fermentation characteristics in these ciders are are very subdued i don't i don't try and encourage or or pitch any weird yeast or Britannomyces or anything to create the flavors i'm I'm trying to pull, pull the flavors from the fruit itself, mm -hmm. and and that's that's what is showing in this cider. The cider is impossible to make without incredibly high quality cider apples. Yeah, are you using yeast or are you natural fermentation? Or? This is, it's a combination of both. So I don't okay. do anything. I don't sul use sulfur or anything early on to to kill any of the wild organisms. Gotcha. But then I do pitch a low dose of yeast to make sure it goes dry. Right. Because in my experience, a lot of the ciders I've made without pitching anything, it will ferment really nicely, and then towards the end it gets really funky. And some people really like that. Yeah. And it's fine. But in ciders like this, I'm trying to show this great fruit and so i don't want that to happen right i do have a cider that i just bottled actually this week which is showing a lot more of the character of the 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 fermentation okay where it was a natural fermentation and it got some really interesting characters um so, I, I, it's, it's a great that's a great thing as you as you expand i mean as you uh, work on different work on different directions to have some that are Focused on the fruit. Some you can create your own character through your fermentation. And it's great to have both. Because this is, I mean, again, another one that's crisp, clean, 
the fruit is there and forward. But it's amazing how sweet something like this can taste when it has no residual sugars in it or very low percentage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this, we're tasting this warm too, which really allows you to taste mm. so much more of that. You know, a wine like this or cider like this is usually served cold. Yeah. Which would be great. Absolutely. But, um, but it's also great when you're, so much more. when you do get a chance to have a wine or a cider that you want to really savor and enjoy, don't just pound it cold. Let it warm up in the glass too. Let it sit. Let it let it change as it warms. You'll get those different characters because you might you might just get big big acid and crisp and awesome when it's cold, but as it warms, I mean the roundness of the fruit hits your palate in a completely different way as it warms up. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm. and it's also a way to really just to taste the fruit itself. Just let things get warm and still. And taste it, and and that's when you can really get at the core of what what that fruit is that's in there. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So that's the uh, Stone Fence Farm, and again, these are also um, these are relatively low um, alcohol percentage as well. Yeah, I mean, so, you're talking eight and eight and seven and a half. Right, low f compared to grape wine. Yeah, but in cider, that is a. Uh, Depending what kind of, if you're looking at orchard ciders like these, that's a very average okay. uh, alcohol level. And compared to most commercial cider, that's a very high alcohol okay. level. Because if you were to take average cast offs from the eating apple industry, where most people are making cider from, that's going to be maybe 11 bricks. <laughs> and that will ferment out at maybe 5% alcohol. So right. and a lot, a lot of, of ciders out there are. Five, six percent, and a lot of them aren't fermenting to completion either. Mm -hmm. So they're not fermenting to a dry, a dry finish like these either. So that last one was a single orchard cider. All of the fruit in that was from one orchard, and it was the whole blend. And this cider is also the same concept, but a different orchard. Okay. This one is called One of a Kind because the orchard that it comes from is called One of a Kind Orchard. And it was planted, it's from Lansing, New York, which is northeast of Ithaca by about 10 miles. And it was planted by someone who wanted to collect one of everything that, one variety of everything they could find. Okay. So they planted hundreds of varieties of apples. Not specifically for hard cider, just, just to hundreds have of varieties. Just hundreds of varieties. And so that's what this cider is. And <clears throat> this is a sparkling cider because it didn't have the same balance of tannins that this has. The reason I wanted to bottle that still, it has so much structure without any bubbles. It's really perfect like that. Where this one doesn't have so much structure from tannins because it wasn't chosen to have a lot of cider apples in it. And so the bubbles lift it and, and create that. Absolutely. Yeah, and compared to the, compared to the, the pack basket, it's got a little more noted um, bubble character. Mm -hmm. Towards a medium. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, this one this one is a nice cider too after the time in the bottle. So this has been in the bottle for about a year and a half. Okay. Maybe a year and a quarter. And it's really got some nice aromas now that were a little bit more hidden when it was only six months old. It's definitely a lighter body, a lighter flavor. I mean, it's a lighter mm -hmm. cider in general. Yeah. 
Yeah, lighter. In fact, lately th- this has been this has been the most popular cider at the farmers markets on a hot day. Yeah. When people are tasting cider, they want this crisp, bubbly, not not really. Uh, it's not challenging at all. It's mm. like easy just to just to drink it. It's not challenging, but it's also not. It's not offensively unchallenging, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is the way is the way I would say it. Right. I mean, it's interesting. It's, yeah, it still has some interest mm-hmm. to it. It's it's just not as rich and complex as the the other two that we tasted. Right. But those are those are curated. Exactly. This that shows the fruit. It yeah. shows the influence that the fruit has. Where when you take an average array of a lot of the apples were heirloom apples, so they're not not like Honeycrisp, but more like Prairie Spy, Northern Spy. Right. Court Dupendu Plat, which is just a really old apple variety. Um, that these are the flavors you you end up with. Not so many tannins as um, subtle aromas. And I think this is the kind of thing when you when you get a chance to sit down and taste ciders, which you absolutely should. If you're in Rochester, again, Muller's and Joe Bean are two of your premier places to go to to taste ciders. But go and taste more than one and try one that has a lighter profile like this. And you'll see, you can see the difference. Sometimes it's hard when you don't have an experience with tasting a specific thing. And this is still new to a lot of people. Is take the time to taste different profiles. Taste one that has a fermented character to it. You know, a, um, a specific fermented character to bring out those funky aromas. You know, taste these, taste the stone fence that is very specifically trying to highlight the fruit. And you taste something like this, which is, this is highlighting a farm in its own way, which I actually find that really interesting. Mm-hmm. Even though, I mean, for me, I like the richness, I like that fullness that the other ones bring, but I can absolutely see why a lot of people would like this. So, something for everybody, but not one thing for everybody. Mm-hmm. This next one is called Old Time Cider. And in a way this is this is like a flagship, but not that I produce tons of it or you know have a um, small number. I probably have eight eight or nine different labels that I have at any one point in time. But this is one that I've been making for years, which is really um, a blend of wild apples, abandoned orchards. Like there's a orchard next door that has about 10 hundred-year-old trees oh, wow. that uh, the landowner can't use the fruit because it's just so much fruit, but it's really high-quality stuff. A lot of the varieties are un- unnamed. I don't know what they are. Um, some, I think, are stamen. And... Then there's some bittersweet apples in here, some wild apples, and then there's also heirloom apples from orchards that I've found in the area, like Northern Spy. So it's a, it, it has a broad array of all kinds of fruit and fermented in the same way as this with wild yeast and a low dose of inocul- inoculated yeast. And um, And it's got, it's got such a different character from the stone fence or the pack basket. Um, it's more, it's big up front, doesn't have the same body, but 
it's got this big upfront flavor and it finishes finishes quick and clean. But that that middle, man, is that striking? And I, I say this not in a not in a bad way, but it has that if people think of apple juice as a you know, the commercial apple juice as a note. This has some of that apple juice, the traditional apple juice notes in it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to describe that better than that. Well, you probably nailed it right there, and it's probably in a similar way that <clears throat> some more sweeter Rieslings can have a little bit more, you know, almost a grapey character to it. Yeah. It's because there's actual, the fermentation is stopped, and there is a fair amount of residual sugar. Like, this has, I think, one and a half percent, you know, like 15 grams per liter of residual sugar, which is apple juice. It's yeah. Like, you know, unfermented apple juice is where all this residual sugar is coming from. And those those aromas of juice go away in fermentation. There's a certain compound. I remember learning about it when I took, you know, some cider classes. Right. There's a certain compound that just smells like apple juice. And when you ferment it, that compound just totally goes away. And I'm sure it's the thing they add back in when they're doing commercial apple juice. Right. Which is... So for those that don't know, when they're doing commercial juices, commercial apple juice, commercial orange juice, they strip out all that stuff of the original juice and they add it back in as a chemical, just like people do, like pancake syrup has no actual maple syrup in mm-hmm. it. Same kind of thing they do with orange juice, and I'm sure they do with apple juice. They'll add that component back in to make sure it has this striking aroma that people are, and consistent aroma that people are mm-hmm. used to, while this is more of a natural representation of that so even though it might smell the same this is the natural normal variety of that versus a reproduced version that you'll get in concentrates and from Mm -hmm. the giant commercial places same thing with wines too so when you're dealing with individual farms that are doing things the traditional natural way you're not getting reproduced flavors well for some of the giant commercial wineries that you might see in Generic restaurants, well, they're reproducing some of those flavors as part of the process. Yeah, those are the things that we don't, uh, I don't really think about. But yeah, that's, that's the way a big commercial products are produced. Yeah. Yeah. Consistency beyond Order anything ingredients else. ingredients and put them together. With this, you just, you press apples and ferment them and that's, you know. Well, you're, tell- you're telling the story of a farm, of a farm on a year from the fruit that was grown on it. And that's that's what we're that's what we're tasting, is, you know, we're tasting a specific year of any of these farms. Right. Yeah. Fifteen Stone Fence Farm, fifteen Warlock Kind Orchard, uh, two thousand fifteen Pack Basket, which is these are scattered all over. They're wild apples, which are scattered from all over. So yeah, some of them are one specific location, but all of them are one one region. Like the wild fruit is all from within. 20 miles and um, and yeah and then the old time that one is a more broad but it is all of the same region and the same year it's awesome very cool mm. wow well Steve I really appreciate you having us out this has been fantastic and what a great day to what a great day to be out in the Ithaca area Hard to beat. Yeah, glad you came. So again, um, why don't you let people know where they can find you? Yeah, so just Google South Hill Cider, and you'll you'll find our website. 
and you can read up on it there. We have all, you know, Instagram, Facebook, that. If you have fun with that stuff, find us because I, I enjoy doing that stuff. Nice. But yeah, SouthHillCider.com. And if you're interested in tasting these ciders, you can order them right off the website. Very cool. Steve, thanks for your time and enjoy the weather. You too. See you Cheers. soon.